Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Rice and Mastery and I'm excited to have Ethan Song, who's the CEO of Ray Circles, where he helps creators and brands build communities in the Web3 economy. Previously, Ethan was a founder and CEO of Frank and Oak, which aimed to reshape the fashion industry by making it more personable, personal and sustainable. Um, Ethan was born in China, but has spent most of his life in Canada. And he's he's an alumni of British or uh, University of British Columbia. Welcome to the show, Ethan. Hey, how's everything? Awesome. Uh, uh, you know, you have an interesting journey. Um, uh, you you were born in uh, in China, and then you lived most of life in Canada. But uh, how how did it all start? How did you get into this crazy world of startups? You know, I think I've I've always had uh, an entrepreneurial drive. Um, you know, I think my story is pretty typical in the sense that both my parents were entrepreneurs. Uh, my mom ran like a store, like a clothing store in Chinatown in Montreal for many, many years. My dad was running a tech startup uh, and also was a CTO for a while. And so I think I've always been around people that, you know, build their own business and create their own products. And so it seemed, it came very natural to me. I would say that I've only had one real job. Uh, I worked at Deloitte in consulting for about two years. And then after that, uh, I decided to kind of start on my own. Um, I would say for me, it's, I think the reason why I like being an entrepreneur is just a freedom um, to kind of build what you want and have like a direct impact, you know, and the reward of like having people use your product and provide feedback. I feel like that is something that is very difficult to get uh, unless you're building your own product or your own company. Mm, okay, got interesting. And uh, you know, you're born in China. Do you spend a lot of time over there, uh, or was it you know uh, living here in Canada more? Uh, it's a mix of both. I, I immigrated to Canada with my parents uh, when I was a kid, but I think you know over the last few years, especially when I was running Frank and Oak, I did spend some time in China. You know, I, I built uh, our supply chain in Asia from scratch, uh, and so visiting factories, working with suppliers. Uh, it's something I, ha- I had never done before uh, launching an e-commerce company, but that actually gave me an interesting opportunity to learn about it, the supply chain chain side of the business, but also actually kind of get in touch with my own personal uh, history. And so I, I have spent time there. Yeah. And, and it gave me a better understanding of the world. Interesting. And, uh, you know, you build, uh, uh, you know, Frank and Oak, what was the experience building it? You know, I saw that you've raised uh, quite a bit of funding and you've opened up a couple of retail stores uh, in, in Asia as well as in Canada. What was the entire experience uh, building the company? Yeah, I mean, it, what's interesting with Frank and Oak is that really the the insight that got us started was an insight around creating a new type of shopping experience. And in that case was... We, I, I used to find that a lot of men, uh, specifically like a lot of my friends were struggling with like what clothes to buy, how to dress for work, what should I wear for an interview? And I felt that a lot of the magazines uh, didn't necessarily uh, solve that problem. And that if there's a way to combine content and products, uh, we could basically solve that. So really Frank and Oak didn't launch as a fashion brand, which is probably what it's more known for today, uh, but was actually launched as more of a service. And so at its peak, we had over like 80,000, you know, subscribers. 
to our, our membership, which effectively every month you would get a curated box of products that were selected for you, as well as gain access to a community uh, with benefits. And so what was really interesting with Frank and Oak when we started in 2012 was that right from the beginning, the community and the general feedback from the community is what really drove the early success of the company. I can't say that it was the product that we sold. And, and that really taught me something about where I think a lot of businesses are going, which is the fact that in a world that's interconnected right through the internet, the product is important, but the audience and the community that consumes that product is even more important. And that was a big part of our early success. Hmm. Got it. And, uh, and, and does it mean that, you know, uh, especially when you're building physical products or even, uh, you know, uh, say SaaS products, do you think you should build the audience first and then the product or should we build the product and, you know, keep building the audience on the same? I think it's, it's a chicken and egg problem. Uh, I think it's a common issue. I, th I, I think you can do both, uh, but I would say the audience is probably more important. But I, I feel like even if you're building a product without having pre-built a community, you should have a very clear community in mind when you build that product. And the moment that you have some level MVP or some level demo, uh, bring it to that community. And so I think the... the the simple, if I have to choose between the two, I would say the community first. Uh, but I also think it's okay to have a product if you're if you understand the community well, and then find ways to, you know, get feedback from that community. But I would say the the co-creation aspect, it's not just getting feedback, but now the ability to actually, you know, get people bought into what you're building, get people's feedback, get get people's ideas into what you're building, and effectively have the community become the product. Uh, is extremely powerful. And I would say that's, you know, something we've seen with Kickstarters. Uh, it's something that we've seen with, you know, like influencers on Instagram that became brands. It's also something we saw like in the last two or three years with even like NFT and Web3 products. It's this idea that the community and the brand are really one. They're all part of the same community. They're all trying to build basically a, a common mission or a common product. Got it. Interesting. And um... Uh, and where do you think is the future of e-commerce going? Uh, do you think if there's going to be an omni-channel way of uh, you know selling products uh, along with using you know AI and uh, and VR also combined there? I think I think the, the the there's a few you know things about the future of commerce that I can share. Like from my perspective, I think that the you know I I think I I really believe in niche brands and niche communities. I feel that you know, you as a person might feel a stronger association with someone across the world because of what you're into, right? Obviously, we've seen that with like, you know, Reddits and like Facebook groups and things like that. And so geography doesn't define what you're into anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, and so based on that, I think that rather than having like billion dollar brands, we're going to see more and more like micro brands uh, that cater to very specific industries that, you know, have that are run by like one to like 10 people. Um, so I think that's a big trend to me. And like, I feel like all the tools that are being built are making that more and more possible and are making that more and more affordable. So that's one aspect. The second aspect is that because of that, I think e-commerce or just commerce in general will only get more competitive going forward, not less competitive. There will only be more brands, more options, things are getting commoditized faster. And that's why going back to what I said earlier, 
having a strong community is one of the things that is highly defensible. To a certain extent, you used to be supply chain, like, you know, you have the ability to make a product, therefore you're differentiated. I think making most products is easier than you used to be. You know, like, of course, there are certain products like semiconductors or like maybe like, you know, iPhones that are still very hard to make. But most things that people are looking to make, whether it's like t-shirts or like, you know, home goods or like things like that are fairly easy to make now. And so your community is your moat uh, in that case. So that's the second piece. The last piece is, which I think what you're referring to is, I don't think that it's, I think we're moving towards like a, a hyper omni-channel and hyper connected world, which means that people will buy from everywhere. I think there's still a role for physical stores. I think there's still a role for like, you know, single purpose transactional stores like Shopify stores, but people are buying more and more on social media. People are buying, you know, through TikToks or they're buying through like, you know, Instagram feeds. And, and I think it's not one or the other. I feel like a lot of people felt that, hey, it's like this channel is going to win. But the reality is people's attentions are split across all those different channels. Uh, and ultimately, they're going to buy everywhere. And it does create an interesting challenge because if you're a brand, it's very hard to be good at all of those things, right? It's hard, it's hard to be good at like all the different, it's already hard to maintain like Instagram and Facebook. And like, I think a lot of people are testing like, you know, Snap or testing like TikTok or trying to like figure out what they can do with Pinterest. Um, it's challenging. And so what I feel is rather than try to do everything, understand that your consumer consumes everything, but that you need to be good at something and then but find the alignment between where your community sits and what you do. And then, you know, there you'll hopefully find some success. Mm, got it. Interesting. And, uh, you know, a lot of investors and founders feel that media is the yeah, every company is, is like a media company, right? But, uh, and, and, you know, that's why, you know, we're building podcasts and webinars and blog posts and all that. But, yeah, but how do you build community? You said community is a moat, but, uh, you, you, you know, if it is a product-based company or a, you know, consumer company, how do you build a community around your raving fans? Yeah, I think the the challenge of building communities, I don't think there's one playbook for everything. You know, I think the the, the last 10 years, people got used to, you know, like SEM or like, you know, Google ads and things like that, where it's basically like, you know, almost like a, like a casino where you put 25 cents in and hope you get something out. Right. I, I think the, the, the reality, I think with community building is it depends what kind of community you want to build and which community you're targeting. But I would say generally, I think affinity is one thing that you need to focus on, which means like, if I'm building a brand that is for people that like hiking or like, like a hiking brand, well, what are the things that, you know, people that like hiking care about? Obviously hiking, but maybe they care about sustainability. Maybe they care about the national parks. You know, maybe they care about, you know, food and agriculture. And so find these affinities and then like start talking about those. It could be content. It could be videos. It could be forums. It doesn't really matter. Start talking about them. I think the second layer is find people that will drive word of mouth. So once you have a strong affinity, and like, you could call these people influencers, but you could just call them normal people that like have a lot of friends, but find people that will tell other people about what you do. And I think go from there. Now, the one thing I've realized is the speed at which you build your community doesn't necessarily translate into how sustainable the community is. And so like, I think an obsession on like, let's say follower account or like, you know, things like that as part of what makes a great community, I don't think it's the right view because a community could take a long time to build, but that doesn't mean that it's less valuable that a community gets built fast. Got it. Interesting. And, uh, you know, what led you to build, you know, race circles after you, you know, you built uh, uh, something in the e-commerce world? 
Yeah. So I, I think, I think what's interesting is, so like throughout the entire time of Frank and Oak, like a big part of our success came from the fact that we had this membership program where people got an experience that had a close relationship with our brand. And one of the things that we did as a brand grew bigger and bigger is we actually put less emphasis on a membership program. And that was actually one of the mistakes that I felt in hindsight I made as a CEO of that company because I realized that, you know, that millionth customer that is not part of the membership program does not feel the same kind of connection to our company's values and mission and our activities and our experiences. And so what I'm kind of trying to do with Red Circles is effectively taking all the things I've learned about building a loyal and engaged community and turning that into basically a product that other brands can use. And effectively what Rare Circles does in that context, it gives you a series of tools that enables you to create that long-term loyalty and long-term retention. But how we think that we're differentiating is that, you know, people ask me like, is it like a loyalty program? I would say that it's a replacement for a loyalty program, but it's not in the way that of a traditional loyalty programs. Uh, in a sense, it's not about discount and cashback. It's more about creating unique experiences and community for uh, your audience. And so that's kind of what the product is, but how it links up with Frank and Oak is effectively I'm taking all the learnings I've, I've had as someone who was running a brand and put them into this new company. Uh, one thing you should mention was, you know, that it's being used by Web3 communities and it's absolutely being used by Web3 communities because we decide to enable uh, some Web3 oriented features from the start uh, but it's also being used by like more traditional brands that like are not part of that community as well. It's it has the openness where like a variety of different users can use the product. Mm, got it. Got it. Interesting. And um, you know, Rare Circles have has raised you know seven uh, million dollars from some some Ivy League uh, VCs like Tiger Global or White Star Capital, uh, Global Founders or Capital, and others. Uh, what, what's the secret of you know uh, raising funding, especially during uh, these uh, difficult times? Uh, I mean, th this was a tough week um, you know, for for the startup community with Silicon Valley uh, Bank, uh, you know, tanking down. But uh, but any advice for founders who are looking to you know raise uh, funding during these times? Yeah, look, I mean, I think you know when we raised our our seed round, like I would say, it was a combination. Obviously, the market was in a better shape. You know, obviously. Being a repeat founder, you know, had a good track record and also experience uh, with working with VCs and like we built a really strong product and team from the start. So all that really contributed uh, to our fundraising success. There's absolutely no doubt that it's a lot more difficult and it's going to be more difficult going forward. Um, I would say the first advice is try not to spend money you know, as much as possible and like either lower your burn or as you make your plan, right? Even post fundraising, just make sure that like you, you like, are very conservative in spending, you know, maybe cut back on hiring, cut back on marketing spend. Uh, because I think that the, you know, obviously there's a debate whether we're seeing a dip or is this kind of like a new normal. And I think that the reality is that the market always to a certain extent come back, comes back, but you can't, you don't know what the timing of that is. And you don't know what the slope of that comeback is. So I expect things to be uncertain for a while. Um, like, I'm not going to make a prediction on any of that, but I, I just expect things to last a while. And so I think most companies should be conservative on cash, should be conservative on expenses. And if you're going to go out and raise capital, I would say you have to have solid proof points of why you deserve to get capital today. Because, you know, if let's say, you know, 
30% of companies got funded, you know, two years ago. Now probably we're looking at like less than like 5% get funded. And a lot of the VCs are focused on supporting our current portfolio companies. You know, obviously you saw what happened with SVB and a lot of like, you know, VCs are putting money aside in case there's more drama uh, coming along. We just don't know, right? It's like the thing is when you don't know, you don't know. So you have to be conservative. So I think new capital is very hard to get. But, you know, I'm, I'm an angel investor myself. And I would say that like, good companies and good founders will always get funded. Uh, but you have to be, even in that case, you have to be more conservative, meaning like assume you're going to raise less, assume you're going to spend more, uh, spend less and assume your runway needs to be more. Hmm. Got interesting. And, you know, I, I want to talk about NFTs, you know, NFTs were, uh, were, re- were really the hot topic, you know, um, I, I would say around six, six months back. But what, what, where, where do you think the adoption of NFTs would happen uh, in the next coming years? And where, where do you see the use and impact uh, of NFTs uh, in the next couple of years? Yeah, I think, I think what we're going to see is, you know, I think NFT came out as this sort of new, new thing, right, that everyone's talking about. And There is no doubt that, you know, there was a bubble, you know, I think crypto had a bubble as well. And obviously a lot of it was created also by COVID, people being at home. And so there's a a combination of factors that made the NFTs were huge, like in 2021. Um, Do I think that it's going to come back as big? Absolutely. Do I think it's going to come back the same way? No, I I think that what we're going to see is NFTs are actually not a thing you buy. NFTs are a technology. So I think that what we're going to see is that the technology itself is going to get integrated more and more into uh, products. And so that like, you're not gonna be like, oh, I'm using a web three product, I'm using web two products, but rather they're gonna be merged into one. Just like when you think about AI, you know, you're not just like, I'm not doing AI right now, right? I, I'm trying to do my accounting. I'm trying to do a customer service, but there's AI that's helping me doing faster. So I think, I think that's what's gonna happen. I think that NFTs and, and tokens can have a huge impact in areas of, you know, customer incentivization, loyalty, uh, gamification. I think those are areas I think there's huge opportunities. That's why a lot of people are talking about like, you know, web three based gaming. Um, but I think it's going to take some time. Like I do think that unfortunately, you know, because of some bad actors and because of what we've seen in the market, you know, there's also reputational damage to the space and there's no doubt about that. So I think we got to be realistic. Um, but that said, you know, what I found that I think is really interesting, which is our philosophy is that what's, what like the, the NFT and Web3 movement have brought are things that can sometimes also be done in the Web2 space. The idea of like, I want to have a strong voice in this community. The idea of like kickstarting a new brand or a new project by having everyone partake basically in the founding of that project. Those are all things that like, I think the tokens help to start, but the reality is they can also start without the tokens. And so our philosophy at Rare Circles is there is a cultural movement and there's a technology movement. And like, let's not let the technology be a limitation to what's happening on the cultural side of things. And so that's why we serve both uh, Web2 and Web3 communities, and we have products for both sides. Very interesting. And you know, how can brands you know, leverage Web3 uh, to, to engage the customers and you know, build communities around it? I, I think part of like what Web3 can do for brands, like I think there's a few ways. I think most, what we've seen you know, in the past, like two or three years was like brands launching kind of like digital avatars or like, like PFP kind of like, you know, like 3D assets, like projects. And I, and I think that's actually the wrong way of doing it. I feel like, you know, using 
NFTs more as rewards, meaning like, hey, you're a great customer of ours. And so I'm going to reward you with some digital goods or tokens makes more sense. And so thinking of it less as something you monetize, but more as something that you can reward your current customers, I think has a bigger impact. And it's definitely in, in the in one of the trends that we're observing in the market now. Got it. And um and and how do you how do you approach, you know, uh especially when it comes to Web3, uh, how do you approach uh content moderation and community management when you're building communities? And and how do you balance the need for for free expression? Uh, with the need for you know a safe and respectful environment, especially with what is happening happened with Twitter uh, and still happening with Twitter, I don't know how long uh, Twitter is going to be there. Yeah, look, it's a it's a very very qu good question. You know, especially as it relates to anything that touches on crypto, because you know the 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 basic philosophy you know of the space is this idea of decentralization. It means like there shouldn't be a central force controlling it, and so I think it's there's a lot of like counter ideas you know i think that play in that space look i i would generally say that i don't think it's something it's not something that we should like so one thing that's interesting in, in the type of products we create is that they're they're managed by the brand or like the community managers and so like for us like those decisions are not decisions that we should be making i think the individual community should decide for themselves what is acceptable what is not acceptable of course as long as legal, right? <laughs> the, like, I think there, there is a line that is drawn clearly as to like, what is not legal? In that case, obviously, I think that there's a line that you have to take. But I think related to like political, you know, things like that, that are, are perfectly legal, but you may not like to be said. I think it's really based on the communities themselves to decide uh, what they will allow and what they will not allow. And I think the beauty within those communities is that if the community managers are voted in or there's some kind of like, you know, governance related to the community management of those communities, then I do think that a community has a, a strong enough of a voice. Hmm. Got it. And, uh, and, and where do you see, you know, the social networking and online communities, what do you think, uh, are they going to evolve in the next, you know, a couple of years and where do you see Ray Circle being positioned uh, uh, to stay ahead of these, those changes? Well, I mean, I think like we're we're not building a social network for say. We're building more of a you know uh, experiential loyalty platform. But I would say there's elements of social media in our in our product, and I think I think what you're gonna see is well, you're already seeing it, which is that like social media does not have to live within a large platform. Like you know, to a certain extent, like Slack communities are social media too. I think we'll all agree on that, right? And so Discords are social media. To a certain extent as well. And so I think I do think that what we're gonna see though is more decentralization, more ownership, meaning like, hey, I have my own community. I don't want to be dependent on like Facebook or Meta or like you know, one of the larger kind of big tech. I want to kind of make my own rules. So I think we're definitely gonna see that where like both brands, communities are gonna create their own um, you know, forum or, or whatever media they choose to be. I think the other thing that, you know, is a movement that we've seen more and more is the fact that I think social media is kind of embedded in the experience of everything we do. It's on mobile. It's across basically our entire experience. And so it's less of a, I have to log into Instagram, you know, to experience what social media means. I would say that it's the second thing that I see. And the third thing is I do think that there's going to be, you know, the data aspect, the privacy aspect is a big topic. And I think that larger companies are going to be more limited in what they can do. And so like, I, I, I actually think that the advertising model is going to be highly challenged uh, and going forward. And therefore that's actually good 
um, for individual brands and individual entrepreneurs, because then they have more control over how they want to build their audience. And like, it's not just their control, but it's also the control that they can give their own audience to dictate what data is being shared or not. But, and, and, you know, want to talk about metrics, you know, how do you measure success for, for rare circle, both in terms of user engagement and business metrics? Yeah. So I, I would say like the first metric is really around engagement metrics. Are people basically engaging with uh, different uh, features and products? As an example, we have a polling, we have a proposal product, we have a content product. So are people reading, are people participating? So that's the first metric. The second metric would be retention, you know, how over how long a period of time do they engage? But the most important metric, which is really what we're aiming for, is do do is that cohort of people generating more business for you? Mm. Right. If you're an e-commerce brand, they buy more of your product. If you're a service provider or a SaaS company, are they using your product for longer? And so that is ultimately what loyalty means, right? Do they have higher lifetime value over time? So that is ultimately our North Star. But often you can't just optimize for higher lifetime value. You got to also build the brand love, right? You got to build a community association. And so engagement first, retention second, and higher lifetime value. Very interesting. And, uh, you know, you've built uh, teams in Frank and Oak as well as Ray Circles. Um, how do you define high performance in uh, within your, you know, the leadership and executive team? I mean, I think it depends on what size of business you are in. Um, I think it always changes, but within a tech, you know, and consumer space alike, I would say until you get to at least about a hundred employees, I think the the most high performing individuals are people that can both be managers and individual contributors at the same time. Um, and I think that's a unique skill. And it's it's a skill that we definitely see in Silicon Valley, where like you'll have the strongest product designers, engineers, like literally put in 12 hours of coding and still find the time to kind of support and design and support their team. Uh, I think, and I think with all the cuts that we've seen, right, across the tech industry, I think we're going to see that back. And I think that's what Elon Musk is trying to do at Twitter, which is to get really strong individual contributors and almost remove those kind of like second, third, like level of management, right, that, that basically are not doing that much. I think strong individual contributors, but I can also manage a team, I think is one area the, the second piece for high performers is also the ability to shut down the noise. Uh, I found that like, you know, everyone wants to work hard. Everyone's willing to put in the hours, but the ones that are really able to focus um, and on like a single task and like really focus are able to actually able to generate results. And it's funny because I've seen the same kind of personality, whether in an engineer or whether in a salesperson, it's just that laser focus on getting something done that gets it done. Uh, I would say that it's the second piece. The last piece I think that matters a lot is I do think that as a company, if you can find people that are very much aligned with your company's unique mission, I think that like it, it helps, you know, to get the best out of them uh, and to get them, you know, they may not even know they have that extra gear, uh, but because of their, their kind of alignment with your mission, they, might, they may be able to tap into that gear. And I think that's the third piece I think uh, is important, is important. Hmm, interesting. And you made an interesting point about Twitter. I think a couple of days back, I heard about Facebook also asking the managers to to become to be individual contributors. But uh, hearing about uh, about you, I think I think it totally makes sense. I quickly want to do the top three. You know, what's your favorite business book? I mean, like, it, there's just so many that it's hard to pick. But I, I would say, like, 
So I'm a big fan of Warren Buffett. And so I would say like probably the intelligent investor, like obviously he didn't write that, but like that's the book that really inspired him uh, and like how he invests. But I, I actually find a lot of the principles from the intelligent investor are apply themselves to life. And I'll just quote a few uh, since we're talking about it, the fact that as an investor, you need to have patience and understand that like most of your life is basically doing nothing except a few home runs uh, when the right time comes along. And so I think that's very relevant. The second thing is don't get, in, get, don't get influenced by the market. And I think in life, it's kind of don't get influenced by what other people are saying, right? Focus on what you know and what you're confident on, focus on what you do. And the last piece even that I feel like with the intelligent investor is don't over diversify, right? Like have a concentrated portfolio. And I think once again, as an entrepreneur, don't try to do too, too many things. Focus on a few things you do well. So I think the intelligent investor is actually a book about life. Uh, so that's why I think it's a great book. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's one of my favorite books. And, you know, uh, I was uh, an ex-stockbroker in my life before I got into stock. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, tech, yeah. yeah. So right. Intelligent Investor uh, is, is is the Bible for us. Uh, we'll put that in the show notes. And if you could go back in time when you um, when you started Race Circles, what is the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question um, because we did apply a lot of our lessons um, to uh, what, how we build rare circles. I think one of the things I would have done differently is I probably would have put out like more product even sooner. Uh, I think that we did put product pretty early on, but it's never early enough. That, like every time I do it, because there was this idea of like perfection and always making it better, like, you know, so that the kind of like flagpole is gets removed because ultimately getting real customer feedback is the, is the best way of like moving fast. So I think not being afraid to put something out, getting immediate feedback, and then like being able to move fast uh, is something I always preach, but that is still hard to do. And so I would say I would, I would release more products sooner. Got it. And, and do you have any favorite online tools, example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom? Yeah, I mean, I would say... Um, I mean, it's going to kind of like maybe age me a little bit. I'm going to throw like a, a funny one is I actually still use and love Evernote. You know, obviously like, you know, we use Notion and, you know, things like that or like Airtable, but I, I found that like, you know, Evernote is a very sticky tool and then basically everything related to productivity, it does it very well. Yeah, no, absolutely. Evernote is, is, is super fantastic. We'll put that in the show notes. Um, Ethan, what is the best way people can reach out to you and know more about Ray Circles? Yeah, sure. I mean, you can find me on Twitter at Mr. Ethan Song, Rare Circles. It's just Rare Circles at Rare Circles. Uh, you can go on rarecircles.com also and like, you know, happy to give you a demo of what the product can do for you. Absolutely. We'll put that in the show notes, Ethan. Thank you so much for taking uh, uh, taking your time and speaking to us. Uh, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Yeah, I really appreciate your time as well. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.